great. And um, uh, yeah, I'm going to pray for Ellen and then she'll, she'll get us going. Oh, Father, we are just grateful to be sisters together in your presence today. And um, Lord, we do just ask that um, you would calm our hearts. I know sometimes our minds can be so easily distracted and wandering, but would you just bring us here? Help us to be present together with one another and um, just to be blessed and, and hear what you've ta- given Ellen to teach to us. And I just ask that you give each one of us that word of truth to apply to our hearts um, today and that you would do that good work through our sister. Thanks in your name. Amen. Can I just go ahead and put this in my pocket? Yep. Okay. All right. Sound okay for everybody? You always have to ask that, right? Turn it up. Okay. How's that? Let's just see. Let's see. I don't like to really be tied to the microphone, but hopefully that'll... How's that? Is that sound okay for everybody? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, I want to just start off by asking, have you guys tracked with the idea of social media influencers? Basically, it's the idea that there are people that can build a reputation for their knowledge and expertise on a specific topic, and they post on those things, and it generates a large following of people who are enthusiastic promoters of whatever they're talking about, including if they're just promoting themselves, to be honest. Um, It's a big business, and companies have learned how to monetize what these people are saying to not only... Uh, produce a lot of income for them as a company, but that person can also become quite rich by doing it. Now, I, I know a little bit about influencers just from things I've read, but I've learned from th- some things from InfluencerMarketingHub.com that there's actually different categories of influencers. For example, a, ma- a mega influencer is somebody that has on social media at least one million followers. And friends. A macro is somebody that has maybe 500,000 to a million. Now, a micro, you know, these are just ordinary people. They've got like 50,000 to 100,000 followers, and they've become known for their knowledge on some specific topic. There's a new category that's come out. It's called nano influencers. And these are people that have like a thousand ish followers. And they tend to be experts in like some obscure field. Uh, they're kind of known as being the proverbial big fish, or yeah, big fish in a small pond. Now I want to ask you, where does that leave most of us? If we're not even a nano, are we just a no? Well, actually, no. The Bible says that we are all influencers in one way or another, and we are being influenced. But the question is, in what direction are we being influenced, and in what direction are we leaning others? I love this. In her article, which is called Our Friends Shape Us More Than We Think, Emily Jensen, who some of you know, she's one of the co-founders of Risen Motherhood, uh, she wrote uh, this, this article, Our Friends Shape Us More Than We Think. She just wrote some really powerful things about how we are created for community, including friendships, and how we do have a unique shaping power in each other's lives. We have a persuasive influence on each other. And we are companions to each other. Again, the, the, the question is, how are, in what direction are we companioning each other? She says, we also speak from the heart to the heart. 
We create feedback loops in which a topic is bounced back and forth, and each person adds or subtracts. They respond, and then they bounce it back to others. I love this. She says, we don't just swap information. We shape ideas. Then finally, listen to what she says so vulnerably. She says, I'd like to think that my ideas are objective. They're a result, and I'll add in my thing, as we Christians like to say, they're a result of our prayerful consideration of God's word. I mean, no one else says that, right? Just we do as Christians. I'm going to prayerfully consider that. Anyway, I digress. She says, I'd like to think that my ideas are objective, a result of prayerful consideration of God's word and my circumstances. That's not the whole story. I also reflect my childhood, my life experiences, my personality, the culture at large, and the microculture in which I exist, my friends. She says, my friends influence how I define normal and wise. My friends' ideas shape my life. And so this weekend, we're coming together because we want to explore the idea of friendship as spiritual companionship. And I'm hoping so much that we're all going to gain a vision for not only how the influence, not only how the influence of Jesus, but Jesus Himself can fuel and fill our friendships in a way that waters our closeness with God, in a way that strengthens us for the very real faith battles that we all face and that probably many of us are facing right now, this morning, as you sit here. And finally, how Christ and each other, that we can inspire hope for life now in light of the life that is to come. So let's dig in. The very first thing I want to do is we're just going to do a quick, and I do mean quick, scan of what does the Bible even say about friendship? Um, I've found that, you know, in my study of this, that actually most of the uses of the word friend, they do mean the word companion, someone who is alongside of you in your life. For example, Abraham, because of the intimate nature of his relationship with God, he's actually named in James 2.23 as the friend of God. Exodus 33.11 explains that God spoke to Moses as a man speaks to his friend, face-to-face, honestly, truthfully. Now, in the New Testament, there are several words for friend that are translated friend. The one that is the most translated is philos, and it means friend, but it means a companion who... You have more of an affectionate, trusting relationship with. There's a commitment there. When Jesus was accused of being the friend of sinners, it's always philos, meaning that Jesus had deep relationships with sinners. Now, in contrast, one of the other main words for friend is hetairos. That's a Greek word, hetairos. And it's only used three times in the entire New Testament. Now, two of those times... Jesus is using it in a parable where he's trying to explain how there are some people that are friendly with God. They uh, kind of say the right things. They might even do the right religious things. But they don't really follow him. They're just kind of there. It's interesting. That's why Jesus wasn't accused of being a hetairos of sinners. I mean, that wouldn't have stung. That wouldn't have been shaming at all. No, because Jesus is truly close with those with those of us who are sinners. 
Now, heteros, this word, is also translated, as I said, as friend, as a companion. But as I just mentioned, it's somebody that is just kind of present, somebody that you might see as an acquaintance, that you see every so often at a social event or a meeting. But it's not a relationship of deep trust and affection. Now, there's only one time that Jesus uses the word heteros when he's addressing a person. One time. Any guesses about who that was? Judas. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when Judas came to betray him with a kiss. Matthew 26, 48. Now, the betrayer, Judas, had given them a sign saying, The one I kiss is the man. Seize him. And Judas came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And Jesus said, Friend, hey, Tyros, do what you came to do. So the Bible clearly defines friends as companions, but the type of companionship can vary quite dramatically. And again, we want to explore this weekend how not only are we the philos of Christ, he calls us, you are my philos. You are loved, dear to me. I want a committed relationship with you. But also, how does this impact the way we see each other? Now, our key passage this morning is John 15, which may be familiar to many of us. It's a chapter that is included in the last, really, discipleship session that he has with his disciples before his death on the cross. The Last Supper has happened. Judas has been dismissed. And at the end of, um, I think, chapter 13 in John, it says, Jesus says, let us arise and go. And 14, 15, 16 are basically this probably walking sermon on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane. And in 15, he uses this visual of a vineyard. Now, his disciples would have been familiar. The 11 would have been familiar with this idea of a vineyard. Because in the Old Testament, God referred to his people as his treasured, beloved vineyard. uh, That he had uh, cultivated for himself. That he'd actually cultivated to bear fruit among the nations. So let's read it. And as we read it, I want to consider four key identities that Jesus names in this metaphor. Actually, I'm just going to do my own little improv here. Um, All right. John 15, I'm going to read 1 to 5 and then 12 to 15. Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that he may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Because, guys, apart from me, you can do nothing. But this is my commandment, verse 12, that you love one another as I have loved you. Because you know what? Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer am I going to call you servants because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends. I've called you philos. For all that I've heard from my father, 
I've made known to you. And you know what? You didn't choose me. No, I chose you and I appointed you to go and bear fruit and fruit that would abide. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you. Why? So that you may love one another. Now, who's who in this passage? Well, Jesus kind of states it pretty plainly. Let's walk it through. First, he says that he is the true vine. As I mentioned, this was a a familiar metaphor to the Jewish people. When he says this, it's as if a spreading and fruitful vine was symbolic of prosperity and blessing. So he's saying that he has come, and through him, we are meant to prosper spiritually. And with that prosperity and blessing, that that would be evident through the ongoing change of our character, becoming more like him. That's the fruit. That's the much fruit bearing out in us and through us. But then secondly, he identifies the father as the vine dresser or the master gardener, the one in charge of the vineyard of God's people. Now that includes pruning and cutting back the branches for maximum growth and cleaning the vines in the vineyard from branches that were hetairos. They were there, but they weren't really in the vine. They weren't true believers. Now, at the end of the chapter, which I didn't read, verse 26, he also identifies the Holy Spirit as the helper and the spirit of truth. And he says more about the Holy Spirit in chapter 14 and 16. I would encourage you to go there if you want to dive into that more. The Holy Spirit is God's helping presence to us in the absence of Jesus' physical presence. But then... Jesus identifies the 11. Now remember, Judas has been dismissed. He's not hearing this. He identifies the 11 disciples and really all who would become united to him as branches in the vine. He calls us branches and friends. Now, what was Jesus trying to explain here about the branches? And honestly, why did he keep repeating himself so many times? I mean, he could have really saved on the word count which is an author is really important to me. He could have just said, you're my friends, do what I say, and love each other. But he, he says so much more here. And what, what does this mean for us? Like, what were we, what were we before we were, we were branches in him? And you might be asking, and Ellen, what does this have anything to do with a women's retreat on friendship? Hang in there. I'm getting there, okay? We're laying the foundation. Let me give you three things, three thoughts to guide us as we think about this vineyard metaphor and how it is foundational, not only to our relationship with Christ, but with each other. Number one, what Jesus is saying here is that the Christian life is one of intimate union with God through Christ, fueled by obedient love to God's word and prayer. Jesus is saying that the normal, the Christian life, how it works, it's one of intimate union with God through Jesus for fruit bearing that is fueled by obedient love to God's word and prayer. And we might add on enabled by the Holy Spirit, but we'll get to some of that later. And we've got to know that this had to sound radical to these 11 men. Jewish men who had grown up in the synagogue, they knew the sacrificial system of God dwelling among his people, but in us, that was, 
that was something that they just, it was probably so mind-blowing to them. Because they needed to go to the temple and be, have a relationship mediated through the priests. And I love that we're actually talking about this just after Easter week. Because what we're talking about this morning, and really I think all throughout the weekend, it's a great application about what we just celebrated six days ago on Resurrection Sunday. That because of Christ's death and resurrection and the sending of the Holy Spirit through the will of the Father... We can dwell with him. We have an intimate relationship with him. Two distinct natures coming together as one. That's referred to as union with Christ, our in Christness. And this idea of the met of the vineyard really helps understand it. Now, I want to show you some pictures of an actual vineyard and how this works. Because I don't know about you, but the idea of union with Christ and even this chapter on abiding in Christ was hard for me for a long time to understand. So I want to show you some pictures that have helped me and I hope is going to help you think through or understand some of this. Let me just move this for a little bit. Okay. So a few slides here. Uh, If you go back to John 14, 23, just a slide before. So here's what Jesus had said just a little bit before this chapter. He says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we, we will come to him and make a home in him. Again, this had to just be like for the disciples, like what? Like home in us? You mean out here? It was something different. And so John 15 is basically unpacking this idea of the vine, the branches, abiding in him, abiding in his commands and love for the Lord and obedience to the Lord are knit together. You can't really separate those. So now let's go ahead and look at a vineyard. What happens? This is an actual pruned down vine stalk. That's what it looks like. It's not very pretty, is it? It's not very green. There's no grapes, but this is what happens during pruning season. The vine dresser, the master gardener and helpers in today's world comes and they prune it down. They're, they're like cutting it down to the very nub and you can see little bits of branches kind of sticking up there. Well, then what happens after this? All right. Well, branches are cut from the old vine stalks in preparation for grafting them to new stalks. So there could be good branches that are abiding there, remaining there, if you will. But the the pruners come along and they cut off those branches. Go ahead. Now, here's here's what's fascinating. So you've got the vine stalk. That's the thick trunk. And then you've got all these little branches that have been cut off. If you've ever wondered how, uh, like, new wines are made, you need to take branches from one kind of stem or grape stem. You cut them off, and they have to be joined to another vine stock. That's how we get these new types of wine, blends and all that. And I'm a red blend girl, so I can appreciate this. So, But here's what I want you to understand. And as we're going through this, I'm hoping that there's some spiritual realities that are going to pop alive. The vine stalk is cut. It's literally called it has to be wounded to create possibility for those branches to be joined to them. So you see someone is cutting and just wounding that thick vine stalk. Next slide. So here's what we got. Now these could be just from all different types of trees. And those are just dead branches. I mean, they might have a little life flowing in them, but... It won't take very long for those to dry out, and they're good for what? Kindling, or maybe s'mores. 
<laughs> so they're just cut off. No life in them. But listen to what happens in the vineyard. Those branches also have to be cut and prepared to be grafted, to be inserted, united. Listen for the vocabulary here. Into the vine stem. Next slide. What I think is so fascinating is the cut and the wounds have to be fitted perfectly for each other. The dead branch is gently then tapped into the wounded vine stalk. You can see on this left side, somebody is actually tapping gently that dead branch into the vine stalk. And then, next slide, at the place of union, the two are sealed because it has to remain. That thing is, remember, the branch is dead. But it's being put into this alive vine stalk. And then the once dead branch and the vine, two completely distinct natures, they begin to grow into each other, becoming one. Next slide. It might take several weeks for even leaves to come out, two to three years for those new grapes, for the fruit to be born. Sisters. We were once dead branches in our sins, hopeless, alone in this world. But Christ, the true vine, he was pierced. He was wounded. He was cut on the cross for our transgressions so that now we've been planted. We've been united together in the likeness of his death, his life for us, and he's taken our death for us. So that finally, Paul could say something so beautiful like this, which is our inheritance as well, that we've been crucified with Christ. I mean, we were dead branches, but now we've been crucified so that we no longer live, but Christ, the true vine, lives in us. So the life we live in the body, we live by faith in the Son, this alive, true vine who has loved us. And given himself for us. I'm the true vine. You're the branches. Remain in me. So that we see that. Next next slide. Thank you. That abiding in Christ is absolutely necessary for a life of faithfulness. For a life of fruitfulness. And it is absolutely the foundation for our friendships with each other. If we try to do it on our own, I can't bear any fruit on my own. But in Christ, through Christ, I've got all the access of the, my inheritance in the Lord to give for, for me, but also absolutely not to hoard, but to give away. So you see that this is a part of the beautiful mystery of what it means to be a Christian. And... As you can see, that union is full. It's a full union. As a dead branch, we come into nothing but our deadness into Christ. And then his life, through the power of the Holy Spirit, enlivens us. We become new creatures, and that's the life we live. So it's a full union, all in. So branches, we really can't say, all right, Jesus, well, I'm, I'll be united to you. On Sundays and maybe Tuesdays and Thursdays. But the other days, I'm going to just do me. That would be like a wife telling her new husband, listen, hon, thank you for the, the new name and the joint bank account, but 
I'll be married to you on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, but the other days I'm going to be single. No, I mean, that's impossible. You're married, you're all in. When we are in Christ, we are all in. But it gets even better than this. Is that even though I am, we are all individual branches, we are absolutely not the only ones in that vine. When I became united to Christ, when I was tapped in, if you will, I was instantly and eternally bonded, knit to all of you who are in Christ as well. Like, you can't get rid of me, and I can't get rid of you. For eternity, we are knit together. We are companions in and through Christ. This is also what we think about with the body of Christ, the household of faith, being brothers and sisters, spiritual siblings. These are all metaphors of spiritual realities. So that's one thought to guide us in this metaphor. Now the other, the second one is I think it's interesting that after all of this, this is when Jesus calls them, you are my philos, you are my friends, you are my dearly loved, I'm committed to you, friends. And that's why this, this retreat is called Friendship is Spiritual Companionship because truly, as believers in Jesus, The type of friendships that we're called to are in Christ, enabled through the Holy Spirit. Third thing, how does this impact the way that we can view each other as friends, as fellow branches? And how might this influence even our understanding of friendship itself? A few thoughts here. First is that branches in that vine, they do exist alongside of each other and they grow alongside of each other, not in isolation and not in resistance to each other and not insisting that somebody be the true vine to us, the source of life. I'm a branch and I I literally cannot isolate myself from you. I'm not to resist the other branches, but I'm also not to say the true vine isn't really doing it for me. So you branch, you be my life. So let's look at these. Isolation. You know, we can try to live as a single branch connected to no one else but the vine, but it really does not work. I mean, the vine has actually said, in fact, if we are in him, we will grow in loving the other branches. So we are, we are in relationship with each other because of Jesus. If you name Christ, the question is, how are we in relationship to each other? And um, a book that I brought with me this weekend, uh, Loving Well, Even If You Haven't Been, by William Smith. It's one of my fave books related to relationships. He's really helped me understand that, you know, Jesus... He came to earth knowing that every single relationship he was going to be a part of, every single one, he was going to be sinned against. He wasn't going to be loved well. And Smith talks about how, you know, when you read the Gospels, you never get this, um, you never get the feeling that people just couldn't stand to be around Jesus. He was hated. But you never get this sense that, you know, he was, re- he was like being mean to people or people that didn't want to be around him. And think about it. Think about him knowing that he was coming to the earth and every single relationship was going to be disappointing. He was going to be sinned against. He'd be betrayed by some. 
He could have easily, if there was anybody that could have done this, he could have said, just thrown up his hands in the air and said, Father, Spirit, I'm done. It's enough. From now on, just the three of us, you know, we've been existing for eternity. This is keep the three of us. It's clean and tidy. Mm-mm. No. And here's, here's a word for us. I need this consistent reminder is that as those of us who are united to the vine in Christ, that we share in his life and in his sufferings, which means it's going to be normal for us to have hard relationships with sinful people. And everybody that's been in a relationship with me would, would say the same thing. Like That's actually a part of our fellowshipping with Christ, is sharing in his sufferings. Now also, so we don't isolate, but we also don't resist. And as we continue to feed off the vine, drawing life from him, our resistance to other branches melts away. As we grow in understanding that, remember, the vine dresser, the master gardener, he has planted us in the vine where he wanted us to be. Acts 17, 28 talks about this, that it is God who... Um, planned where we would live and who we would live alongside and to what depth and what would those relationships be and for what purposes. This doesn't mean that it's easy, but it does show us that the Bible goes out of its way to make it clear that we will be in relationship for our entire earthly existence with other sinners. I want to read something to you from this book um, in a chapter called, uh, called Long Suffering, Bearing Patiently with Each Other. Uh, Again, in this section, he talks about um, never once do you get the impression that people could barely stand to be around Jesus. Instead, they swarmed to him, not because he always told them what they wanted to hear. He wasn't soft on sin. He did point it out, but he didn't do so constantly, certainly not to, to the extent that it was present all around him. He was neither prickly nor critical. And then Smith says, slowly... I've come to realize that my calling in every one of my relationships is to live with sinful people the rest of my life. Like me, each person in my life is weak or sinful in some way. But that doesn't mean I'm supposed to manipulate or nag them or resist them or isolate them. No, I'm called to bear patiently with the things that are difficult for me to accept or things that annoy me. Not to condone sin, but to frankly... Uh, realize that people do sin and need help, including us. I love this. He says, I am called to create healing relationships and to care for those who are bruised and hurting around us. I love that. And it is very challenging, isn't it? And so we are in relationship to each other through Christ. And I, and I want to just kind of offer this out is I think some of, these, some of these points that we're talking about convince me again of why it's so important to commit to a local body of believers, a church, where we are working it out together. There's not an easy exit strategy. You know, and, and we can do that. You know, New Life is a big church. You know, it's easy to be anonymous. Um, I've had seasons of being anonymous um, but we also make covenant vows to each other. And we become members. And we commit to unto Christ to be in relationship of humility with our leaders. But we also make vows that we are going to pursue love and peace with each other. 
And I need that kind of accountability because my natural bent is to just do what I want to do and to be independent and try to make it work out on myself. So branches are in relationship to one another through the vine, not just, not through each other. And this gives us great hope because some of you, I've been in this place in different places in my life, like I don't really know how to do friendship. Like I either know how to just completely attach to people and become very codependent, be a mini messiah in their life. Um, Or, you know, I'm just going to keep my distance. You know, I don't... I don't have time. I don't really know how to do small talk or this or that. Here's the good news. When you are in Christ, you don't have to try to find your own reserves of love. When you're in Christ, you don't have to think of, okay, now what are all those steps again about being a friend? There is wisdom and we do grow in it, but we lean on, we depend on, we feast on the friendship of Christ himself. And that's what we offer out to each other. That gives me great hope, just as it is also orienting and humbling when I realize, all right, Lord, um, a part of sharing in the suffer- your sufferings is to be involved in the lives of people who are hurting and sinning and will not meet all my needs, so to speak. That gives me great hope, and it also pushes me, entices me, woos me towards Christ himself, knowing that He is the only friend that truly sticks closer than a brother. So here's a few thoughts as we wind down. And I kind of just alluded to this or said it is I want to just say, friends, some of you may just feel like you just need encouragement this weekend. Um, You need encouragement about your relationship with Jesus as the true vine. You might even be thinking, yeah, I've never really gotten this. And I still am kind of confused about this. And you might be realizing, you know, Jesus has always been kind of a Sunday thing for me. Um, but he doesn't really have a whole lot of influence. Like, he's, he's not an influencer in my life. And if, if you're there, if that's the genre where you're at, I'm so glad you're here. This is a great place for you to be this weekend, to be encouraged. Uh, this is an imperfect community of sinners. But I know it's the heart of the leaders, it's my heart that this would be a safe space for you this weekend to say, would you help me? Would you pray for me? And so if the idea of the vine and the branches is something that is very confusing to you, please don't just let that stay confusing. In the hour of silence, you might take some specific time, open up to John 15 and ask the Lord, Lord, I don't understand this. Illuminate me. Help me understand it. And actually love that the hour of silence is right after this. Um, And we are asking you to love each other by holding that silence and guarding that silence for each other. So the Lord himself is inviting you to himself in this hour. So reach out to him. Ask him to help you. And then, hey, you've got a whole lot of us here. Come up to one of us. I'd love to get time with you. Um, and chat about this more, either now or in Drescher. We've got a whole summer in front of us, okay? Second thought, sisters in Christ. Can you identify if you lean in the direction of isolating from other branches, of maybe living as a hey, tyros, even in our own church? Not that you're not in Christ, 
but you're present, but you're not vitally connected with other believers. And listen, I get this. I get heteros mentality. I am kind of what I've heard called as a extroverted introvert. Um, I love alone time. I really do. I love this. Like, and I love like girl world and retreats. But, but I've been in seasons of really living this way. You know, slipping in and out on Sundays. Anthony finishes his sermon, said, let's pray. You're gathering up and you're out. I've been there. I've been too, you know, too busy, too busy to connect, unwilling to reach out for help to the other branches that are right alongside me. But when we live this way, when we live with a hetairos mentality rather than a philos mentality, we're settling for a type of relationship that isn't at all what Jesus had in mind. And it's not what we've been created for. And so in that, the hetairos lifestyle will not be satisfying. It might feel safe, but it actually can lead you to starve out. Just even be, feel suffocated. Now, this isn't, this isn't guilting. This isn't, isn't shaming. But it is an invitation for you. As I, myself, have needed, have needed invitations, have needed uh, corrections from people in my life. As I mentioned, I had a couple friends that did that to me when I just wasn't showing up. So maybe you can pray and ponder and journal in the hour of silence. I mean, turn inward in the best use of that word. Turn towards Christ. Call upon your indwelling, loving Lord and just ask him, yeah, Lord, I, I do isolate. I, I like to just be impotent and in, independent. Like, Lord, why is that? Why am I resistant or why am I scared to develop philos friendships? And he's your friend. He'll listen and he'll guide you in that. And then finally, some of you might be in a season where you're thankful. You're thinking, I've got... I've got so many branches around me, I don't have time to connect with all of them. And, and your friendships, you might feel like, yeah, like I'm thankful that right now I have like the sap of Christ just flowing in and out of these relationships. Great. I mean, this is amazing. And we have so much to benefit from you as you are available to share that fruit-bearing life of Christ with others. But let me just encourage you, again, as I need encouragement, is that there are so many newly grafted in branches around us or, hey, Tyros branches that don't know how they got there. They're not sure how to get out of that, who need companions alongside of them, who would benefit from having you as an instrument um, in Christ, of Christ, to move towards them, really with that missional love that Jesus talked about in the chapter we read, verse 16, did you catch that? He said, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you for what? To go and bear fruit. And that includes in our friendships with each other. He wants to bear fruit in us and through us. So I don't know where you're at. And you know, that's not the most important thing. Jesus knows exactly where you're at this morning. How you need encouragement, how you need comfort, uh, maybe how you need some exhortation. And really, we all need those things in one way or another probably most of the time. And so this hour of silence now is an opportunity for you to just be quiet with the Lord. There's some songs that I've recommended that kind of t- attach on to the um, themes of each of the talks. You might listen to one of those with earbuds in. Um, 
as uh, Charlotte mentioned, there's kind of a, um, a devotional guide for you if you want to walk through that or, um, or just however you'd want to spend this time. So I'm going to pray for us. And then uh, when I pray, then we are kind of in that silence. So I'd ask you to leave silently, um, quietly, and then we'll come back together um, at 12 for lunch. Okay, let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we praise you. Thank you for calling us my philos, my dearly loved friends. And so I ask you, Lord Jesus, through the Spirit, helping, counseling, comforting Spirit, by the will of the Father, I pray that as we go into this hour, and really the rest of this retreat, that you will commune with us and meet with us, Lord. I pray that if tears need to need to come out, that those would come out in anger, disappointment, whatever whatever's on our heart, Lord, help us to just pour it out to you. And then I, I do pray, Lord, that over the course of these hours that we have together until we leave tomorrow, that uh, you will cultivate your love in our hearts and that there'd be little seeds of that love being sown out into each other's lives. So Lord, we go into this time now of quiet to be with you and to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen.